Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm David Cobb. I am the Redneck, and you darn tootin' I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do so as well. Because remember, this whole program is dedicated not just to repeat the ain't it awful, and my goodness, it's awful, right? An ecological collapse. Uh, the late stage capitalism is literally morphing into end stage capitalism. Fascism is literally rising in this country. I mean, it is awful. But there is also seeds of hope that are sprouting. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, American authors is Tom Robbins. Uh, and Robbins uh, has a great line in one of his novels where he says, he's writing in the 1970s. He says, you know, it's hard to live in the last quarter of the 20th century because the world is falling apart too quickly to be very comfortable, but not quickly enough to be really exciting. To which Cobb says, as we enter the 21st century, things are getting very exciting because <laughs> things are falling apart quickly, but because things are falling apart, opportunities are emerging that had never been seen before. Things that people have talked about, dreamed about, struggled for, but objective material conditions are opening up and giving us space to try new things. Literally, imagination space is opening up in ways that never did. So here on Redneck Ground Green, we push ourselves to tell the truth about how bad things are, but not to stay there, but instead to say, and what is to be done? It's in that spirit that I'm really excited to share with you a webinar that I'll be moderating uh, next Tuesday, September 19th, called The Imaginal Cells of the Solidarity Economy, Politics and Policy. Uh, and in that webinar, we're going to explore how to use and influence public policy to advance specific policies that are part of a coherent strategy to completely democratize the entire economy. Worker-owned cooperatives, public banking, community land trust, participatory budgeting. And because this is literally a webinar on, again, Tuesday, September 19th, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, to be very clear, this whole program, if you're listening and or watching us live, this is a shameless plug in promotion for an amazing webinar that we want you to register for. It's absolutely free, but you do have to register. And in that spirit, we're going to bring Jackrabbit in, producer of Redneck Gone Green. You often will see or hear from Jackrabbit at the end of the program, but this time we're bringing him in at the very beginning to serve as co-host slash interlocutor. So Jackrabbit, come on into the program. There's Jack Rabbit, the handsome bastard that he is, for those of you who are watching. And if you are watching, remember, whether you're watching on YouTube or Rumble, whether you're reading this on Substack, whether you're listening it to on our podcast, please like, subscribe, and share. Our audience is growing thanks to people like you. We're breaking out of that corporate algorithm. Jack Rabbit, how you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, David. Thanks for asking, man. I'm really excited about this webinar. I really am. Um, you know, all the so many of the topics are all ones that uh, have been really, uh, really important, I think, to me. And I'm really interested in learning more about. Um, but, you know, that's what I would like to hear from you, David, is why uh, what are the topics and, and why are they so important? 
So I'm so glad you asked that, Jack, because like each one of these are uh, they they are part of what you've heard me talk about as non-reformist reforms. And I want to be clear: every one of these topics that are going to be uh, do a deep dive are reforms, which is to say they are winnable, they are achievable, they are concrete, and they are being won in various spaces. Uh, 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 across the country and the world, right? So every one of these can make people's, can and do make people's lives better. But if you do them all together, they can be non-reformist. In other words, they can go beyond just making one thing better, but can begin to democratize the entire system, change the rules. They can, in effect, be peaceful revolution to allow us uh, to begin to undermine the logic of capitalism itself, the logic of white supremacy, the logic of heteropatriarchy, the logic of colonialism. They are ways for us to rethink how our society organizes. So I'm gonna um I, I just wanted to be real clear with the people who are watching or listening on our podcast. You know, the uh the panelists who are gonna be at your webinar are gonna be uh, Kali Akuno is going to be talking about who's there to kind of like share his experience with worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, Petula Hanley is going to be discussing participatory budgeting. Lydia, Lydia Lopez will be discussing community land trusts. And we'll also have Carolyn Park, who will be talking about public banking. Um, and, and these are all these all these topics are so important. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was considering of what our what our discussion today was going to be is that on their own while they sound great these are kind of like you know in a vacuum they're not really necessarily going to make a difference right they can there's the potential for it to to be there but there's so many different factors that would be working against them as an individual success like like a public banking or community land trust uh, a worker-owned co-op you mentioned uh, non-reformist reforms. And I think that kind of working to get like all these working together in as these non-reformist reforms, what, what does that mean and why is it important? So thank you so much for that, uh, Jack, because uh, as you say, look, I want to be clear, every one of these individual topics, worker-owned cooperatives, public banks, community land trust, participatory budgeting, they absolutely matter. They make people's lives better. They are, they are absolute improvements on the existing system. But taken alone, they're not transformational. Uh, they are not structural. They're not transformative. So a non-reformist reform is one that is conceived not only in terms of what's possible within the framework of the given system, uh, but instead what could be made possible uh, that go beyond merely maintaining the status quo and fundamentally challenge the existing structure. So these are uh, the difference between a kind of reform that just fine tunes the status quo from the top down, but actually addresses root causes. And that's why I can go through each one of them and show you how, okay, yes, they, they don't challenge the overall structure, but here's the key, Jack. If we did, if there was any community doing all of these at the same time as part of an intentional, transparent plan, 
it would genuinely be revolutionary. It would be economic democracy. It would actually democratize finance itself. Right, right. I mean, like, you know, and, and this is something that I think is so important is like, what is going to put food on the table for people? What is going to pe keep people in their houses, keep them clothed? This is so important. It's such an essential element that has to be included in the work that we do as revolutionaries, right? I mean, that is that is essential because it's not going to be, people can't eat theory, right? Now, I, I, you know, I, I mean, it's important to be able to have a strategy and a framework to be able to attack like the issues that are so important. What I really love about, you know, what, um, you know, what the solidarity economy discussion is about is it's about how can we kind of, use our resources collectively in a way that is consistent with our principles, like the principles, like humanistic principles, right, of, of cooperation and sustainability, right? And that's, and that's what this allows us to do. And so I'm hoping that like this conversation can be about those different elements, the elements that make up the larger strategy, right, and why they're important and how they work together. So Back so you. thank you, Jack. I, I really want to uh, lift up what you said and take the challenge head on. Uh, you remind me of the great African theorist and revolutionary who literally was fighting to create liberated zones in Africa, Amakar Cabral. He said, and I quote, always remember that the people are not fighting for ideas, not for things that are in their head. They're fighting and accept the sacrifices that the struggle demands in order to gain material advantages, to live better, to be in peace, to benefit from progress and for the better future for their children. And to me, that real, and this is coming from somebody who is in armed struggle, uh, you know, against colonial oppressors. Uh, and he was saying, we're not doing this out of some conceptual idea. And to be clear, Jack, he was a theorist. But what he said is our theory exists in order to be better practical revolutionaries. And that, yes, there are some of us who are just inspired to do these amazing things, but the, the, the ordinary person who's first bumping up against these ideas, they wanna know, is this gonna make my life better? Is this going to make my child's life better? Is this going to bring me peace? Is this going to make progress something real for me? And well, that's yes, why. Yeah. Yes, yes and, right? Yes and, right? It's like the stuff that you're talking about, I, I hear you and I agree. And I think that what, what we're talking about, the theory part of it is this is why being in solidarity with each other and being sustainable and being considerate and compassionate and humanistic is the way that we want to structure our economy. Our economy is already structured. There's already opportunities for people to eat and to have and to be clothed and to be housed. All that stuff exists already, right? But it's it's it exists within a frame that is brutal and it's and it's selfish and it inspires loneliness and and mental health issues, right? And so what what we're talking about is what would it look like, right? What does it look like if we can instead Get all that stuff. Get the food on your table. Have yourself clothed. Take care of your children. Get your get get education to your to your family, but in a way that is that is is based in love, 
and not in greed and exploitation. Is that is that too like is that too silly? I don't think it is. Let, let me real quick. I'm sorry. I, I want to just really get this out. Human beings are mammals. All mammals work together. That is a fact. It is just an absolute fact. It's not arguable. You look at wolf packs, lions, you know, all of them. They all work together as in as a group. They work together. They help each other out. Every single mammal on the planet. And we're no exception. And that's the way I feel like we need to be living living our lives. And that's why I think that the, the theory that you're talking about is so essential because it brings that that fundamental biological evolutionary like you know found fundament and brings it into like the reality of, of the basic things that we need in our lives so i'll just let you know kelly who is a, a frequent viewer and listener you got a, a heart and a love from her on facebook so thank you for that kelly and jack you, you're 100 percent correct right like let's be clear about this the right wing tells a lie constantly about humans being individualistic uh, and competition is human nature. And, you know, that that like in the in the Hobbesian sense, life itself is nasty, brutal, mean and short. That's a lie to be very clear, like human beings, homo sapiens evolved because we were effective collaborators and cooperators. Like we would not have survived at all. Certainly we would not have been able uh, to become the dominant species on the planet if we had not been cooperators. And I wanna be clear about this, Jack. I don't believe that human beings are fundamentally angelic, nor do I believe that human beings are fundamentally demonic. I believe that most of us tend to do what we're incentivized to do. And this is the problem. Yes, our current system, the political economy already exists and it incentivizes exploitation, oppression, domination, and extraction. And if we created systems that incentivized cooperation, love, compassion, those things would change. Well, and let's, so, talk about, let's talk about cooperation, what we want to do to, that, to those meanies. Oh, there you go. I love this. So for those of you who are only listening on the podcast, I want to let you know what those who are watching us on Rumble uh, or YouTube are saying. And that is a beautiful image that says, fire your boss and take full control of your life. What's the tagline, Jack? It's simple. Not easy. All right. So let's get into that, right? So when we say fire your boss, that is to say, worker-owned cooperatives, right? But worker-owned cooperatives, not merely for the sake of co-ops, right? So this is the thing. For those of you who don't know what a worker-owned cooperative business is, it's a business where the workers are owners. And I'm not trying to be coy. I'm not trying to be flip. I'm for real. The point is you can have workers who are not owners but you don't have any owners who are not workers, right? So this is an important distinction. So just because you're a, a worker doesn't mean you get to be an owner, but there is no owner who's not a worker in the business. So let's say me and Jack and Kelly and Catherine uh, and somebody else who, uh, Travis, who's, who's uh, uh, in the conversation. We can all get together and create a new business. In the current way of thinking, 
there would be me, the owner, who then hire y'all. And my whole point is I put you to work to extract the surplus value of your labor. Uh, and I make money on each and every one of you. And as I bring on more employees, I do it because I'm making more money. Every employee, I only bring in an employee if it's profitable, right? A worker-owned co-op is different because it says all of the owners are also workers and get to decide how the, the, the business is operating. Now, it doesn't mean that every owner or every worker is an owner, and it doesn't mean that every decision necessarily has to go through a Occupy Wall Street style consensus process. Thank God. Right? But the difference is, to be clear, the difference is nobody is actually extracting and the surplus value of the labor of somebody else. The point is, a worker-owned cooperative business is still a business but it's owned by workers. And so therefore the workers themselves are the ones who are benefiting from their labor. And when you do that, the, the, the objective data is very clear that the folks at Democracy at Work Institute have a phenomenal amount of uh, evidence and research where they studied these. And get this, Jack, when you fire your boss and actually take full control of your life like this, your business lasts longer than a traditional business. Worker-owned cooperative businesses last longer. Oh, but wait, there's more. Worker-owned cooperative businesses are more profitable. Worker-owned cooperative businesses have a much higher level of satisfaction for the workers. Worker-owned cooperative businesses stay in the community and get this, every dollar spent at a worker-owned cooperative business circulates in the economy about 10 to 12 times. If you spend that same dollar for the same exact good or service uh, in a locally owned business, that's a traditional business with a, one owner or, or one or a couple of owners and the rest workers, that will circulate about eight, seven to eight times. If you spend that dollar on a corporate franchise, circulates about two and a half times. So, it's called, economists call that the elasticity of money. And the point is, Jack, when you take a look at worker-owned cooperative businesses, you make people's lives better as worker owners, you empower them, they are better ways to do business. So that alone is a, a much better way to do it. But what we're saying is that's a necessary but not sufficient condition. We don't want to do co-ops just to do co-ops. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, what, what, what this really makes me think of is how important it is to have these other non-reformist reforms that we were talking about earlier that's going to be discussed in your webinar. And by the way, folks, we do have the link to the registration for that webinar should be in the comment section. So please do check that out and register for that webinar that David will be um, uh, moderating. Um, but one of the things that this makes me think of, David, is this idea that that we do need all these other things to occur as well, right? Because it's not just enough for you to have a, uh, you know, to have a worker-owned co-op that is, because what happens when that worker-owned co-op is somehow threatening to the capitalists who exist in that community or outside of that community, right? What are they going to do if they need to borrow money from 
you know, the bank to be able to make an improvement or to, for, for whatever reason that, that may come up, you know, they, they're still at the mercy of the bankers and the capitalists, right? So that I want to, would like to segue into our next, or our next topic, is, which is public banking, if you want to kind of like get into that and, and why that's important as well and how that I works do. as a non-reformist reform. I do. And I'm going to use a comment from Kelly, who I've already lifted up once, uh, but Kelly is a very frequent listener and commenter. Uh, thank you so much, Kelly, for being part of Redneck Gone Green. Kelly writes in the comments, it would be wonderful to have a world where basic needs were met without struggle and exploitation. And there was more time for every human to have agency about how to spend their time. Uh, she goes on to say, to follow their dreams or interests, to educate themselves or dig dip deeper into their interests. And before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of public banking, I really want to underscore what Kelly is saying here, which is, do human beings exist to service the economy? Or is the economy supposed to exist to facilitate us being fully human? Like, I think that Kelly's point is, yes, it would be wonderful. And Kelly, I'll go you one better. We fucking deserve that. That's how we're supposed to be living. These capitalist exploiters and oppressors have, uh, have created a system where they've locked up the food. They've incentivized this level of struggle and exploitation. And they forced us into competition with one another, right? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Like, this is not our birthright. Because I'm going to tell you something. What our ancestors, we, we, like, we all descend from an indigenous worldview, right? So the indigenous worldview understands that we are in a reciprocal relationship with all of life with each other as humans, with other tribes and other groups of humans, but also with all our relations. Our, our cousins, the bears and the salmon, our cousins, the eagles, our second cousins, the redwood trees, right? Like the point is we're all related. They're, they're, they're all our relations. We're all dependent on each other. Uh, life itself is a beautiful cosmic dance of interconnectivity and relationship and what we're supposed to feel from the moment we open our eyes what we're supposed to realize is i am part of this magical beautiful cosmological experience and there is a place in the world for me and i have not only gifts to offer but other life has gifts to offer me and i don't offer the my own gifts merely out of some sense of, oh, I'm so wonderful, I'm giving it to others. It is literally a privilege to offer the gift just as it's a privilege to receive the gift, right? So to me, what Kelly is talking about, that's why we got to get into public banking. And watch this segue, Jack, because public banking takes the incentive of money itself as a commodity and democratizes it right? It, may, it understands that money is merely energy uh, and that the idea of money should be, it should flow like water. There you go. Public banks for public good. You know, sometimes, Jack, when, when people ask me, all right, so what's the difference between uh, a public bank and a normal bank? And the answer, you ready for this? I'm listening. A public bank 
is owned and operated to benefit the public and every, all other banks are owned by private shareholders to benefit the private shareholders. And again, I'm not being coy. I'm being straight up. Public banks democratize economic decision-making because they say money and commerce itself should actually be a public good that is being put to the public interest. So, uh, you know, public banking is a very simple way to ask ourselves, how can we ensure that banking is not merely done uh, for private interest? Because the way that current private banks operate uh, is to make money for the shareholders. And that's why it is it can be profitable for a, for a private bank to invest in Wall Street that's destroying small businesses. It can well, be David, profitable. It, David, it's not just that it's it's not just that it's it's beholden to its shareholders. It's that it's interested only in profit. That's mostly like that's a fundamental motivator for these banks and for the people running. It is the banks. only motivator, to be clear. Right. right. And, Whereas why, why is a public bank so much more essential to our plan for these non-reformers? Why is it a non-reformist reform? Well, it, it, again, it's very simple because a public bank allows us to tap into capital uh, without profit maximization. So in other words, like whenever uh, Jack talks about uh, why are these essential, because public banks can uh, can make money available for things like affordable housing and climate uh, uh, climate mitigation. It can it can make things available and free us up uh, for money in ways that a private bank would never do because those things are not profitable. It's not the 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 concept is fundamentally different. And I just want to say welcome to Camping Allen. It's uh, great to have you on the show uh, joining us. Um, oh, Colorado. And I also want to uh, lift up Z Manny, who is another frequent commenter and uh, uh, participant, who says, I saw a document, a document, documentary with Gar Alperovitz. Gar wrote uh, uh, America Beyond Capitalism, by the way. It's a seminal book. Uh, Alperovitz says that maybe a third of the U.S. population is already tied to a co worker co-op or a credit union. So Z Manny asks, how do we tap into or consolidate this huge base? People are already experiencing this. And that's the point. Z Manny, like for real, I'm not being sycophantic with you. Exactly. People are already getting a taste of it as a reform. But if you're just doing a credit union and you're not thinking about the bigger picture and trying to facilitate that, then it's not, it's still just a reform. What Jack and Kelly and myself are trying, and you, I suspect, what we're trying to do is say, yes, we do those things, but we need to do them as part of a coherent strategy to democratize the entire society. And I'd let, and, and, and I want to point out, you know, I read this amazing book. I highly recommend it. It's called The Color of Money by, um, oh, I, I can't uh, think of her name off the top of my head right now, but. Alan um, Brown, I think. No, no, no. This is different. Um, <clears throat> but. Um, that's not who it is, but but it's it's about one of the things that this this person talks about is the way that despite all the efforts that have been made in the black community to be able to build black banking and build up the black community in that way, 
Um, the reality of our economic system in the United States is that, you know, the money that uh, that was supposed to be a part of the community and enrich the community, nevertheless leaked out into the broader economic system, right? And and it was like it. There was just real. There's really in the long run, there's no real way to be able to maintain and and keep that money that is from the community that is being put into that black-owned bank. There was no way really for it to multiply its uh its value which is what banks do is it's called the money multiplier effect there's no way for that to happen because the system itself was extracting that wealth literally from from it's historically extracted that wealth from the black banks and so why i think that public banking is essential as a part of the broader of a, a broader attempt to create a revolutionary solidarity economy is because you know this idea of you know it, you know if the co-ops are isolated if the if the public bank is isolated then it's not as strong and it doesn't necessarily have the ability to be able to maintain itself but it's just part of the workers working the bankers banking putting it all together along with the rest of these non-reformist reforms that we're going to uh, going to continue to talk about so that thank you so much, and thanks also for uh, bringing up that book because I, I I'll confess I had not heard of it. I just did a quick internet search, and it looks fascinating. It uh, is, and uh, uh, so I uh, I am always grateful to be educated. The other thing I want to uh, underscore is that public banks uh, literally are incentivized to invest their money locally. So they stimulate the local economy by creating jobs and investing in local projects. It keeps local funds circulating within the community instead of the Wall Street that actually sucks money and resources out of the community for external investors. But wait, there's more because the profit and interest that are generated through the very working of the banking structure, the the profits are returned uh, and the interest are returned to the community through lower fees for banking services, lower interest rates for loans, funding for community projects, and the very cost of operating a bank gets lowered. So fees gets lowered, interest rates get lowered. Uh, and when you have depositors like municipalities or city governments or school districts, then that frees up their money for the more uh, existential reasons that they exist. And the other thing is to really make it clear, public banking is promoting democracy and transparency because the bank itself is fundamentally and ultimately accountable to the public, operates transparency transparently so that the community has oversight and participation in the very decision making. So this is something that I think is really, really key. Yeah, I agree, man. I, I think it sounds I think it sounds really great. I think it sounds really great again in combination with and I, I keep coming back to this because I think that what we see now today in in not just well, mostly just in our country is like this a fracturing of the left, um, a, a lack of shared goals, lack of shared values, a lot of infighting. And you know a lot of uh, a lot of organizations, single issue organizations that have their own, you know, their own goals that are kind of operating, you know, in isolation. And I think that 
you know, to be able to discuss this and to talk about this stuff as part of a whole, uh, you know, a whole broader strategy for, you know, the solidarity economy, I think is so essential and so important. Um, do you want to do you want to move on to? Um, well, I, I think that the question that I, I see has come in from Rumble. Uh, I don't know if you want to throw that up on the screen, uh, Jack, or if you just want me to read it out, because I think that actually gets to the very point that you just made. So I'll just let folks know uh, that on Rumble, the question was asked, what strategies do we have to resist the financial and political interest of private banks who have nearly limitless amounts of money to squash our efforts to establish public banks? Because this gets to the point, right? If we don't cooperatively collectivize what it is that we're doing, they will pick us off one by one, right? Now, I, I want to be clear, public banks, like there is a public bank in that very left-wing liberal bastion known as North Dakota. Yeah, that's a joke, uh, right? North Dakota is, of course, one of the most conservative, rock-ribbed uh, Republican states uh, in the union today. But 100 years ago, they were part of the agrarian revolution and populist uprising, and they created a public bank. And that public bank is used by ranchers, small farmers. They don't really think about it as, oh, this is some lefty idea. They think about it as this is a better way for us to do commerce and not let the big Wall Street uh, bullies and thugs come in and put our their boots on our neck. So the way that we resist the big Wall Street banks is to make it clear and simple how much better public banks are. And we have to overcome the ruling predatory class that are actually going to be doing that, right? So public banks and worker-owned cooperatives, I hope you're seeing, Jack, and listeners and viewers of Redneck Gone Green, I hope you folks are beginning to see, oh, if these are put together, they become more powerful. So they feed each other. So instead of competing to say, no, no, don't work on public banks, come work on co-ops, you say, this is actually a, a movement of movements that when we work on them all together, we actually all win. Yeah. And I think it's really important that, that it's communicated what the benefits are, why they're important, why it matters, why, you know, so that so that it can grow like i mean we uh you know david you and i were talking the other day about our experiences with occupy wall street and i think it's really important to keep in mind that you know there was no organized or coordinated effort when it came to occupy wall street to have have it happen around the country or around the world which it did right and so you know people saw what was happening in new york at the time and were inspired by what they saw and had those similar feelings about the reasons that people were occupying, you know, Zuccotti Park. And, and they took up that, that, that banner for themselves. And I, I, I would imagine that if we're, if it's possible for these non-reformist reforms to kind of come together as a broader strategy, people will see that if it's communicated and made clear to them, that it's something that they can do and it's something that benefits them as an and is important for them as well now there's uh there's 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 more there's there's more we only have so much time and i i know we want to just talk about all this so much, i mean all this stuff could be its own show right but we do want to get through some of the other stuff and and i would also love to hear uh hear something about 
I've heard so much about participatory budgeting in the past, and I'd like, I would love for you to to share with us why it's important and how it fits into our broader uh, our broader strategy. Well, I'll absolutely do that. And, and before I do, I would remind viewers and listening that you're watching and or listening to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the Redneck. Yes, I've gone green. And I'm trying to convince you to do it as well. And today we're talking about the imaginal cells of the solidarity economy, politics and policy, a webinar that I'm going to be moderating next Tuesday, September 19th, 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. You do have to register. If you're listening to my voice, go to either our YouTube channel uh, where you'll see uh, this in the link, uh, the registration link, uh, or you can go to our, um, uh, heck, what is our writing called? Substack. Uh, and the uh, you can see what that's all about, right? So what I'm saying is this is something that we're going to go deeper into uh, with folks. And now we're going to talk about the idea of participatory budgeting. And I want to lift up our good friends at the Participatory Budgeting Project, who actually breaks it down and says, in essence, participatory budgeting is a type of sourcing of by ordinary people to decide how to allocate part of some kind of public budget, whether it's the city budget or a city uh, like a, a a school district's budget or a water district's budget, but you use a democratic, deliberative decision-making process that actually allow people to not only uh, 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 have influence, but actually to ensure that they help design the process, they collectively come up with potential ideas, they develop proposals together, then collectively vote on it, and that the winning projects actually get funded. In other words, Jack, think about this. It's like one of the ways that I that I often say, you know, when you say to somebody, I want you to exercise power by voting. And really what I'm saying is vote for somebody to make good decisions. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds to me like somebody who says, hey, here's a book that says how to get rich. And somebody says, oh, I'll buy that book. I'd like to get rich. And then when you read the book, it actually says, okay, <laughs> um, spend money not only on this book, but uh, help me to get my get me rich and get in power and then lobby me uh, uh, to, to, to do something good for you, right? It's, not, it's, it's a very indirect way at best. And it's really a scam, right? The wonderful thing about, and this is what Occupy got right. If you empower people to make decisions and those decisions are meaningful and they, they, and they see it happen, they'll get hungry for more of it. The problem, and I say this again, you and I were part of the Occupy movement, right? We met actually uh, during Occupy. The difference is if you have a participatory process but you don't implement anything of meaning, then it kind of actually is a, a, it's process for the sake of process, as opposed to, to make people's lives better. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Help me to, help me to, um, to, to be clear about that, David. Which part? Well, I mean, because participatory budgeting is basically it's like you were saying it's it's a democratizing of 
like the 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 resource basically it's like it's allocating the resources where the public wants them to go is that correct that's correct right and so go yeah go ahead so let me let me actually get it super uh concrete right i'm gonna uh tell you uh a bit about uh, some five different participatory budgeting examples and what i would call not just their outcomes but their successful outcome so the, the participatory budgeting process usually consists of five basic stages. One, designing a process. Two, you have public consultation and solicit uh, and help ordinary people develop proposals through that uh, process. Number three, a process by which not elected officials are evaluating it, but the people themselves are evaluating it. Then you have some form of voting. And then lastly, there's the implementation. So uh, this whole process uh, uh, actually has been done and is being done all across the world. It actually got started in Porto Alegre, Brazil, when all citizens of voting age annually uh, uh, in, since 19, I think 1990, they come together uh, and they actually vote on how to allocate the budget, the city budget, right? So it's implemented through a blend of both very direct and representative democracy so that the neighborhoods uh, get to have thematic discussions with anybody who wants to participate can come to citywide assemblies and uh, the public con consultations are run in several thematic blocks uh, like on transportation, on sports, on libraries, uh, on uh, uh, health clinics and so forth. So the result is that you get usually underrepresented groups become quite visible and they're able to articulate their needs. And what that means is that those are usually much more fairly represented in how the budget allocation uh, gets made. So it greatly reduces corruption uh, and it increases transparency and the budgeting process itself becomes one of the outcomes. So in Porto Alegre, Brazil, they literally are talking about a budget of about $1,200 per person that they know if they go and participate in, they're able to help. So that's just one example. But wait, that's Brazil. I'm going to now fast forward to 2008 in Chicago. Uh, so uh, in Chicago back in 2008, and they're still doing it, by the way, uh, but the way that process works is any resident of a particular district uh, uh, is welcome to first submit their ideas about what the district's infrastructure should be, right? So the city of uh, Chicago, it's a major, huge urban center. There are multiple wards or multiple districts. So what they do is say, all right, there's a certain amount of money in every district, but what we're going to do instead of just having the city council make the decision, a, a pool of money is made available to say, all right, let's put for, let citizens put forward proposals and the winning proposals are then forwarded to the relevant city agency that is responsible for implementing that. So the participatory budgeting process in Chicago back in 2008 was a hugely successful effort that showed how to implement it. And the results were 
it's just an enormously higher community participation, direct involvement in citizens, and they made different decisions in districts, in different districts. Some decided uh, that they wanted to have more and better parks. Others went for healthcare, others went for libraries. But the point is when you engage the citizens, everybody then has to listen because you can't just say, I want, I want. You also have to say, oh, but my neighbors are making other suggestions. They're articulating other needs. Now, so David, I, I, I need to break in here because I, yeah. I, I, I mean, so one of the things that I found during Occupy Wall Street, right, um, was that such like situations that sound similar to what you're describing can actually be manipulated by um, actors that are not acting authentically, right? Who may have ulterior motives. This is not, you know, I mean, it's not easy to talk about, but it's also something that I think it just, it just, it happens. I, I have a, I'll try and make a brief story about a friend of mine who was in uh, Action AIDS in San Francisco in like, I forget when they were active. I don't know if it was the early aughts or if it was in the nineties, but you know, they were these like kind of these, these radicals and they had these open meetings. And as long as like you were, you were there and you were queer, then you could just like take part in it and it was fine. It didn't matter. Right. And, you know, what they said was this, that the cops really hated them because they were effective. They took to the streets. They like were really, you know, they they did they made a made a difference. Cops basically sent a queer uh, a queer cop to to the meeting and then and blocked everything. That's literally that's like literally what they did. And I mean, like, you know, in just my own personal experience at, at Occupy Wall Street, I saw similar things happen. And so, you know, one one. I mean, I do, I would, I really want to hear like how you, like your vision of how you see these concrete things, like these are concrete steps, participatory budgeting, right? Like public banking and, uh, you know, cooperative, you know, cooperative workplaces. It's, it's, these sound really special and really amazing. And I, I'm, I'm curious because I, I'd like to point out that there is a, um, an underlying ideology that informs their the way that they function. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are going to be directly involved all share a certain ideology or a certain point of view, right? And so I, I feel like what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is there needs to be a fundamental change in the way that we see each other that goes outside of these, these reforms. And I don't want to. I, I I don't want to be a negative Nancy. I don't. I really don't. But I I do want to point out that that you can't expect everybody who comes to those meetings are going to be on your side necessarily, right? Of course not. But that's the point, Jack. Like again, humans are neither angelic nor demonic. Like uh, what I'm describing and what folks in the in the chat are are responding to so positively is that we are creating structures to incentivize cooperation, uh, to, to incentivize a new way of doing things. But there's no uh, uh, magic wand. None of these things are going to change uh, like people's fundamental nature. But again, I don't think that people are fundamentally ugly and mean-spirited. Like there are some, those people are called sociopaths and there's no process that's gonna cure uh, a pathology, right? Sure. Like. Like uh, those people exist, 
But the problem is in our current capitalist system, we put those bastards in charge, right? Like we've, we've rewarded them. Uh, and instead, what I'm describing in participatory budgeting and public banks and worker-owned cooperatives is to say, we're actually doing our best to disincentivize that. We know it's going to come into the process, but we don't let it control the process, which is why, like to me, I don't believe that you don't bylaws your way into a healthy culture, right? Right? Because culture is everything that you do and how you do it and why you do it. So if we begin to create cultures that include art, that include love, that include dancing and singing. If you start to, to create spaces for people to do those things, they will begin, most people will begin to react accordingly. But make no mistake about it, like there are still people who are going to come in and try to get, you know, push other people around and try to, like, and everybody tries to, in a participatory process, Everybody's trying to persuade. Remember, you end up voting for this, right? So right. I want a park in my neighborhood uh, because I'm going to benefit. And, and I think that I might become the contractor that gets a government job. Like I'm trying to persuade people to do that. But other people have to be there to persuade others. But there is no uh, magic wand that you say, if we just do this just right, all of a sudden everything is puppies and rainbows. It's still a struggle. And that's why we have conversations like this so that we can think through. But I'll tell you this, if we don't try to create new systems that incentivize love and compassion and meet people's needs, we're going to go over the cliff. Well, definitely one of the things that I, that, that struck me that you were saying was this idea of incentivizing cooperation, right? I think that that's something that I really like about these different, these different elements of a kind of a broader strategy and a broader community, a broader solidarity economy, right? Is this idea that what you're incentivizing is for people to work together. Like if I'm going to be in community with other people to be able to manage the resources that I need, that they need, right? I have to start to care about those other people. I have to care about like what they want and why they want it. And what I can do to appeal to them? What is it that we have in common that we're working? We want to work together in this community to be able to make those things happen. And I think that, like, what I like here about what we're talking about is the more that we can have that incentive in different um, in different channels, uh, different elements, different different places in our society. So that in the workplace, in like in the bank. Um, uh, you know, in the budget, in the budgetary process, right at the at the uh, at the governmental level, right? As we, if we kind of take a look and at all these different places where they can be incentivized, there's a more it it, it grows in power and, and the ideas that this is that this is a way for us to work together um, become more more put to the forefront. So yeah, I'm I'm liking it, David. I think it's pretty cool. I love what Z Manny actually uh, pipes in with, uh, who says, if you're talking about moving past a particular example of something to applying that model on a larger scale or connecting people around it, that gets into the question of communication and media support. And Z Manny, thank you so much for that, because literally that's why Jack and I and others 
behind the scenes are trying to create this thing called redneck gone green. Like it's not an ego trip. It is literally to say, because corporate media is never going to cover these stories because the algorithm of like the social media is never going uh, to, to, to lift up these kind of examples, these kinds of frameworks, we've got to do it ourselves, which is the appeal. Please comment, like, and share, whether it's the podcast, whether uh, it is the Substack reading, whether it's YouTube or Rumble. But before we move on, because we've only got uh, about uh, seven minutes left, I want to make sure that we talk about the last of the very concrete things, Jack, and that is the use of community land trusts. And, oh, thank you for those of you who are watching on Rumble or YouTube, uh, you get the opportunity to actually see a beautiful visual image about how a community land trust works. I'm going to do my best to walk you through it if you're listening uh, on the uh, podcast or, or uh, 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 otherwise just not seeing this beautiful image. So in a community land trust, a nonprofit owns the land. So by a nonprofit who does not have incentive or need to return profits to shareholders, land is no longer a commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit. So you take land itself out of the commodity market. All right. So that's good. So, but wait, there's more because a community land trust also says, all right, if the nonprofit owns the land, but the nonprofit can get into a lease with a homeowner to own the, 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 the house itself or the box. So think about it, right? If you have a mortgage or if you've ever uh, purchased a home, you know, uh, you purchase both the land and uh, the box uh, and the, uh, you know, you're borrowing money from a private bank, by the way, that's making money on the whole transaction. But in a community land trust, the land itself is owned in perpetuity by a nonprofit. So we're saying we're taking that out of the equation. But you get into a lease, what's known as a ground lease in law, to a homeowner who gets to own the box, right, the house itself. Uh, and therefore, any improvements that you make to the box are yours. Any... Uh, uh, any value that uh, uh, comes out of the box itself. And you might even have a community land trust where you're allowed to sell the box, right? So the, uh, uh, and then typically private lenders provide the, the mortgage to buy that box. But now imagine you have a public bank that says, oh, we want to ensure that there's more affordable housing and instead of going to corporations and rich fat cats to build affordable housing, which by the way, if I'm the fat cat, I build affordable housing. And in 30 years, uh, it reverts back to private uh, ownership at, at market rates, right? Uh, affordable housing, the way it's currently operated is basically a scam, right? But what? imagine for a moment you say, all right, we have a community where there's a public bank, so, and there is a viable community land trust. So the community land trust uh, goes to the bank, the public bank to buy the land and then gets with low income people 
to give them the opportunity to become homeowners because they're only buying the box. They're not having to buy the land. And get this, when they go and get a mortgage, they're not going to a private bank to build the house. They're actually going to the public bank that says, oh, well, we don't have to return profits to shareholders. So the interest rate is lower. Uh, we can give you more favorable terms. Uh, we can we can give you longer to pay off. But wait, in this community where there's already a community land trust and a public bank, there is also a worker-owned cooperative. And so that the workers who go and build these boxes are actually benefiting from their own sweat equity. And this is the point I want to make, y'all. When there are non-reformist reforms, we're literally making people's lives better. Commerce is happening and we're not incentivizing the destruction and rapacious commodification of Mother Earth. We are actually getting into a community where everybody is getting their needs met and none of this is having to happen in ways uh, that we expect people to be angelic. They get to actually do what's in their best interest, but it's also in a community where the community's interests are also uh, taken. Yeah, and I think that's so important, David, just like to bring it back to this idea of incentivizing and, 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 and incentivizing that cooperation in all these different sectors so that like it's just, it grows, it just multiplies, you know, where that's, that's, the, that's the mindset. And, um, and I, you know, and I do think that what Z Manny brought up is really important too, because I think that it does, because I can speak as, as an American and I, I, I feel so, so miserable to have to say that, but, but as an American, you know, we have this idea, it's all about competition. It's all about like, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps about being the best and the brightest and the strongest and like rising above the rest and, and taking what you can, you know, it's just like, there is this, this rugged individualism that is pushed on us from the moment that we take our first breath in America, you know? And I think that there is going to be a challenge. I, I really do think that there's a challenge involved in being able to really help people to get this idea that working together and cooperating is, is better, is more effective, feels better, just feels better. You know what I mean? I think that's that is something that hopefully we'll be able to like take a you know really take a thoughtful approach towards um when thinking about how to promote and you know grow this this movement and and the ideas behind this movement um i love the i the the incentive the incentivization the incentivizing of the cooperation that you're describing i think it makes a lot of sense and it really appeals to my need to see these ideas as something that are tangible and that can make sense to somebody who, you know, maybe isn't necessarily a theoret uh, you know, a theoretician and, and finds, finds that uh, to be really motivating, right? But more along the lines of like, you know, what are the, you know, bread and butter issues, you know, uh, you know, family that the, the family will discuss around the table at Thanksgiving, you know? So yeah, I think it's, I think it's great, David. So I just want to point out, Z-Manny actually makes two comments uh, in the chat that I want to lift up. And one is Medicare for all. Uh, where's the uh, 
who's talking about this? Well, I'm going to be bringing Dr. Anna Malino into Redneck Gone Green uh, in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to talk about that very specifically. And that uh, the Community Land Trust is literally going to be part, very concretely, the California Community Land Trust Network. We're going to have uh, next Tuesday, September 19, but not at our normal time. She's going to be on a webinar. Remember, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, but you do have to register for it, Z Manny. So all of you, I know we've got like, we get hundreds of views uh, just on YouTube alone. That doesn't count the readers on Substack, which are in the thousands. It doesn't count uh, the Rumble uh, viewers, doesn't count the podcast. So I'm telling you, please go to this website and register for this webinar so you can ask these questions to practitioners of these policies. Yeah, and just put the link. Oh, go ahead. You know, I just wanted to say, I just put the link in the comments so people can check it out. The last thing that I want to do is lift up Kelly again, uh, again, who is a frequent participant, uh, who says some of the smaller communities that would be the most able to make these changes and to interconnect with them might not know about them. Redneck Gone Green could do a virtual town hall. Just a thought, she says. And I got to tell you, Kelly, Thank you for that, because I'll be honest, I hadn't thought about it, but I am now. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, let uh, Jack and I put that into the mix. But Jack, I could really see a, a kind of town hall with some like local elected officials from small local communities who might want to uh, try to think about this. So I love this idea of using Redneck Gone Green to organize, educate advocate, right? And I'm going to conclude with this, folks. We know that there are solutions to the problems that we face. They're not being implemented because we, the people, don't control our own government. We don't control the media. We have not a democratic republic, but we actually live in an oligarchy. Or if we were really honest, a kleptocracy, right? Where the, the predatory class are not just ruling over us, they are stealing from us. They are stealing not only uh, the natural resources, but they're literally stealing our future and our children's future. So to me, it's the exhortation to say it again. We know this audience is getting larger, stronger, and better organized every week. And I'm grateful for that. But if all I'm doing is uh, making you feel better for an hour once a week, then it's really not worth it. The point is to not only inspire you, right, but to inspire you to try these experiments in your local community. Institution building uh, is work. Now, it doesn't have to be miserable. It can be joyful, but it's still work. But that's the key. If by work, we mean meaningful, productive human activity, I believe that people want to do work. If by work, we mean a job where you're exploited and pushed around and bossed about, nobody wants that. So let's create systems where we get to, not have to, where we get to work together and we get to see the, the fruits of our labor and we get to enjoy the fruits of the labor. That's the world I want to live in. And I think you do too. Jack Amen, Pitt. brother. All right. <laughs> Good night, y'all. Peace. Thanks, everyone.